You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. TMC listeners, this is Rupert. This week, uh, I'm returning to one of my interview subjects from last year. This is Lars Nelson, the uh, head programmer at the Alamo Draft House in Austin. Um, I really had a good time talking to him the first go round. Um, so I just threw together another list of questions, a lot of um, inquiries as to his favorites in certain genres and whatnot, um, and uh, had another good time with this one and lots of colorful and interesting um, answers from him, uh, as I expected. So, uh, enjoy. Okay, cool. Um, you know, so I, I just really had a good time with the last one. So this is just a bunch of, I sent you the questions, but it's just a bunch of uh, basically favorite movie kind of questions in lots of random categories. Um, yeah, sure. Because you're a man of refined tastes, and uh, I always uh, appreciate your choices. So uh, let's kick it off with um, your favorite Eurospy film. Uh, Eurospy, well... I like a lot of the uh, Italian ones. Obviously, some of the, the, the James Bond ripoffs, but I tend to... I look at them more as sort of ambient material because generally the storyline story is pretty mechanical and um, very derivative of James Bond movies. Um, but I do... I, I have to say I enjoy the ambient quality of the ones with Margaret Lee and with Alba Neri. Uh, there's a couple of the ones with, that have John Gavin as their star that are uh, fun and enjoyable. But they, you know, they, they'll always typically have a certain number of Bond ripoffs. But the, actually, the Eurospy movies I really like are the Jess Franco ones. He actually did a ripoff of some of the Italian James Bond ripoffs <laughs> called Lucky the Inscrutable. I'm not oh, sure yeah. if you've ever seen that one. I have definitely not uh, seen that one. I'm sorry? I, I have not seen that one. I've not seen Lucky the Inscrutable. Well, it's, it is like his version of one of the Italian James Bond ripoffs. And uh, I liked it an awful lot. It has... It, it does a lot of the same things that those all those Italian James Bond ripoffs do. It has a lot of the same cast members, uh, and at the same time, it has a lot of sort of peculiar Jess Franco energy. Um, and then he made actually a series of spy movies called the Red Lips movies. There's only two of the classic Red Lips movies, but that's Kiss Me Monster and Sadist Erotica, which is also known as uh, was it Two Undercover Angels. Um, and those two movies are probably my favorite '60s spy movies that aren't like Bond movies. Wow. Um, and, and those have those have great anarchic energy. Um, and even at the beginning of uh, Kiss Me Monster, there's even like this whole like little psychedelic graphic that says blow up, like revolving and revolving in front of it. So it was really intended to be this sort of pop art um, movie. And it has, though it's very cheap, it has that very sort of high, uh, high color comic book look to it that I like. Um, Interestingly, Jess Franco in the early 80s revisited those Red Lips movies. He actually continually kind of revisited the Red Lips movies, but he made one in the early 80s called uh, Two Female Spies in Flowered Panties. <laughs> that for me is like, despite the unwieldy title, it's, it has, Jess Franco's movies always are mostly Grace Notes, like Howard Dogg's movies, like they're mostly Grace Notes. I'm not comparing the two across the board, but, um, but. Two Female Spies and Flowered Panties has so many great little grace notes, just so many great little scenes that work on their own. And it, if it doesn't hold together necessarily, well, a few of his movies do, but um, if it doesn't exactly hold together, it's it's okay. You kind of learn to forgive that with Uncle Jess, <laughs> that his movies may not, may not be all the piece narratively structured, but they're so exciting just as films that I'm having just great scenes here and there, and they're just like mind-bogglingly great films here and uh, scenes here and there. But in Two Female Spies with Flower Panties, it starts off with the scene where, like, the two female spies are uh, are being hired uh, by this police lieutenant, and he puts them to the audition where, of course, they have to do, like, the strip dance in front of them. Of course. And he critiques their strip dance all the way through. And honestly, it's, it's almost like this little meta-cinema where they're saying, like, all these things that critics would have said about Jess Franco's movie, and he, he's saying it to critique their strip dance. Oh, right. You know, and, and then at the end, he's like, oh, well, it'll do. You know, so it's a it's a beautiful little little moment in that film, and I, I like a lot about that film actually. That's awesome. I like a lot. Of, 
I was say that's, that's oddly poetic the way that he he closes out that that scene there after the the meta criticism of his own films that may be in play there and whatnot. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he's also, then, he, then he criticizes the criticizers at the end. He's like. He's like, it's good to give me a hard on or whatever he says. <laughs> Very nice. Well, you're a huge Jess Franco fan. I remember we talked about him a lot in the last interview. Is he? Would you put him in your top tier directors or as far as your favorites? Yeah, he's definitely. He's definitely one of those secret masters. He's one of those guys who's like a master of film. Who, and I don't know if like if thirty years from now he'll get the appreciation he deserves. I mean, his films are uneven. And for the most part, they're they're always going to be ghettoized and not respectable. But he's a master. I mean, it's, it's the evidence is all there when you look at his films. I mean, he's a master of making films. And the fact that he, he's made so many of them, I mean, he's diluted his gift, I suppose. And you could say, well, if he if he had made in the course of his career forty movies and taken all those good things from those forty movies, then you know he really would be reckoned as a master. But he hasn't. It's just not in his nature to do that. I mean, he has to make movies, and he keeps on making movies. You know, he makes movies with, like, a little camcorder now. Oh, he does wow. whatever he can, you know. I mean, he's barely getting around, and yet he's, like, he continues to make movies. It's just in his nature. You can't ask him. It's like not breathing, you know, or it's like a shark. has to swim, you know. He has to make movies, so. Yeah, well, you got to respect that's, that That's passion. his problem. That's his problem. That's his problem with respectability is that he makes so many movies, yeah. and he's made movies in, in whatever format that he can get paid for, which has generally been sexploitation or porn movies. Yeah, wow. Well, it's true, this idea of dilution of the gift. I mean, we've definitely seen that with a lot of directors that, you know, have some decent films here and there, definitely have some great moments in many of their films, but have made so much stuff that over time it just ends up being kind of clunky. And I'm not just not to say that that's his career in a nutshell, but, you know, uh, but it's funny that you mentioned that dilution because it's t- definitely an issue with a lot of directors I enjoy. Um, well, yeah, and that's, but that's the audience's problem, though. I mean, it's... He's pure. He's pure to the, his muse. He really is. Yeah. It, it, it's it's really the audience's problem that they can't keep up with him. <laughs> I mean, it's like you can't you can't expect him not to do what he does. You know. Yeah. And I've there there've been very few filmmakers who have ever been as pure, as true to their muse as Franco has. No, that's a fair thing. That, that's that's cool. Um, did he ever make the next question I have about is about sp- spaghetti westerns? Did he ever dabble in that category by chance? Yeah, I think he made one western. He made a Zorro western, which I haven't seen. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, he may have made more than that, but I believe he only made one Western. But but as far as, like, spaghetti Westerns, or European Westerns, let's, let's start calling them European Westerns rather than spaghetti Westerns. European Westerns, okay. That's let's a, start okay. calling them that, because it, it's it's a little bit degrading. For no, you're right, you're right. To call it I was going with the popular terminology, but it is it is a bit passe. I have to agree with that, so that's fair. So what are some of your favorite European Westerns, or your favorite, if you have some? Well, just to, well, just to get back to this, as far as, like, why not use it, it's also, it's, it's inappropriate because, you know, there's some, most of them took financing from across Europe, and almost all of them were made in Spain rather than in Italy, of course. That's so. true. That's anyway. a very good point. Very good right. point. Uh, well, uh, as far as spaghetti westerns, so, though, um, I don't know if you ever, I, I don't know if you're into music as much as you're into movies. I am. Uh, and and there was a great magazine, there was a great magazine called Forced Exposure that was around through the 80s and the first part of the 90s. And I remember reading a review uh, with Byron Coley, or is I no, the, it was a review written by Byron Coley, who used to review for them. And he was like, you know, all these people pick up like all these obscure little psychedelic reissues of these bands, you know, that that made one album and they made press two hundred copies. But like, I talked to some of these people, and like, they don't even own like the first five Jefferson Airplane records. You know, it's like so. One thing about spaghetti westerns is I think it's important to note is that. While it's it's cool to check out a lot of the obscure stuff, like the more famous stuff, often is really like the best stuff. Like I, it, it, there's nothing better in spaghetti westerns than the good, the bad, and the ugly, and for a few dollars more, and once upon a time, you know, in, the once upon a time in the west. Yeah. So it's like there's nothing better than those. Those that's as good as it gets. Yeah. So true. I would encourage people like like while yes, let's let's delve into some of the more obscure ones. Like don't don't not um, be into to Leone and all his films because his films are among are, are of course the best. Yeah, uh, but I would say second best. Yeah, the guy who made spaghetti westerns was Sergio Corbucci. Yeah, I was going to say I thought you might. That's he's great. Yeah, and so like I would, I would definitely uh, recommend checking out uh, any Corbucci western. Really, uh, not so much his crime movies, but definitely any of his westerns. Um, and some of my favorites there are, are uh, A Professional Gun, also known as The Mercenary, uh, Hellbenders. I love, of course, yeah. Great Silence. Uh, those are all great. Um, 
I know you don't you don't call me to talk about like the well known movies. You probably want me to talk about some of the more you obscure talk, things. You can talk about whatever you want, but I always love when you do go into the more obscure. That's that because when we were you were talking about the Jess Franco films, my head was swimming because I have heard of none of them. So like that's always entertaining for me. But wherever you want to oh, yeah. go with this, it's fine. You know. Sure. Well, well, some of the more, some of the more, and I don't know if you say these are necessarily obscure, but they're not canonical certainly uh, I talked a little bit about to you uh, earlier this year or, or late last year about the Bell Star story yeah. uh, Lena Bert Mueller uh, Spaghetti Western I, I like that one a lot it's there's just some there's some level of distance from the genre and some um, like a way of looking at it uh, from this female perspective that's very special and peculiar to that um, but another question that I like quite a lot that's also very different is a bullet for the general the Damiano Damiani uh, Western. That's got Arnie very... Borgnine in that, is that right? No. Oh, Bullet for the General. Uh, I'm thinking of, sorry, my bad. Yeah, yeah, no. Bullet for the General is uh, Lucas Dell's in it. Got it. Uh, uh, Martin Bestwick, and then the, that great actor whose name is fucking drawing a blank on right now, who uh, is in for a few dollars more. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, fuck. And he's in. He's in. Like the Italian Oliver Reed. Yeah, he's fucking great. And why can I not? Uh, it's killing me too because I can see his face, his his unshaven face, you know. Uh, and I yeah, no, I can't, think, I can't think of his name, but he's a great actor, and it's killing me. Yeah. Anyway, he plays El Chucho in this movie, uh, and I'm, I feel like such an idiot for not remembering that, but it's just not coming to me. A bunch right. of a bunch of bowels are flying at me. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, but yeah, both of the general is great, um, and then there's a couple of. There's a couple of westerns that are based on that have various uh, levels of, of basis in Hamlet, uh, which is one of them's Johnny Yuma, oh, um, wow. which which stars Mark Damon, and then Rosalba Neri's in it, which and she's great, and I love any opportunity to Rosalba Neri in a film, and she gets a great juicy part where she plays uh, Mark Damon's stepmother in this film, and, and she's uh, she's beautiful, and it's great to see it, her and just like play a bad woman. Like a real conniving evil bitch, <laughs> which she does in that movie. And that's Johnny Yuma. And the other movie, uh, the other Western that's based on Hamlet is um, uh, Enzo Castellari's Johnny Hamlet, which is also known as Wild and Dirty. And that, I mean, that's a pure version of Hamlet, really. I mean, whereas instead of a ghost, there's like this old gunfighter played by Gilbert Rowland who comes down and like teaches him how to be a gunfighter and tells him to get revenge and all this sort of thing. So like that. I love Shakespeare, so I, I'm a big fan of that movie. And it's Castellari, too. And uh, I, I hope a good version of that will come out someday, because there's not really a great version. I've got something weird, and it's again, 16-millimeter transfer that's not very good. Ooh. Yeah, no, I mean, it feels like Castellari's seen a bit of a resurgence in the past, you know, several years. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, so maybe without they'll a come doubt. around, you know. Um, so, uh, in another category completely... Uh, I, I, now you, I remember last time we talked, you had recommended the um, the Phil Hardy uh, Overlook Encyclopedia, the horror book, uh, which yeah. I love, by the way. And I, I was actually just oh, yeah, flipping through just over the weekend. Um, but if if I look at Weird Wednesday, often the calendar, uh, as varied as it is, doesn't feature too much horror. Now, was that something you were into uh, previous to this, and, and you sort of branched out into other things, or do you still have an affection for horror films? Oh, I have a huge affection for horror films, but Terror Tuesday is there too. So, I, I gotcha. figured Terror Tuesday is a, you know that's that Carlson series. I figured they pretty much cover the horror movies, so I try oh, not yeah. to. I, I play very few horror movies. Yeah, um, that totally makes sense. I mean, when I think about it, but I was just curious about some of your favorite underrated horror films. Uh, sure. You know. Well, uh, you know, it's hard to say what's, what's underrated. Because oh yeah, I hate God, I always use that word, but. You know, off the. I guess I should just say your favorites, and you know where to go with that, basically. You know, <laughs> so that's. Probably. Well, I was thinking about my favorite underrated horror movies. These are movies that just have really no. I, I don't know if people know about them, even though Messiah of Evil did get a release this year. But that's great. Messiah of Evil is certainly one of my. You, have you seen it? Yeah, I love that film. That's a great film. Yeah, yeah, I love Messiah of Evil. I think it's a uh, talk about a great atmosphere. It, yeah, it's it's such a great atmosphere. And it's just so aggressively weird. <laughs> it, it's not. It's not like any other movie. No. Um, and uh, also, well, I don't mean to keep going back to just Franco, but uh, Erotic Rights of Frankenstein, this movie, uh, and I would just kind of make put that as a piece also with uh, Devil's Wedding Night, which is not his film, but also stars Rosalba Neri, so I'm making a couple full circles here. Wow. But um, those are two movies that I like a lot, particularly because they have this sort of horror comic 
feel. They've got this visual aesthetic that makes me think that they may have actually read some horror comics huh. and tried to go and like particularly like you know like the those horror comics by like Esteban Morato and some of those uh, people who, who had like this very visceral and very broad style of um, just kind of no holds barred, no no good taste, you know, but, uh, and yet very decorative. Um, so th- those films to me. Uh, Erotic Rights of Frankenstein and uh, The Devil's Wedding Night have that feeling to me. And I don't know if you've ever seen The Devil's Wedding Night. No. It's a really fun movie. You should at least look at the check out the trailer. It's, sure. it's one of my favorite horror trailers. Nice. Um, and I've thinking about a couple of other ones, but um, I don't know how many people like this movie or not, or if it's underrated or if people like it. I have a feeling that probably people just kind of scan by this without ever checking it out. But Gordon Hessler's uh, Murders in the Room Morgue, written by Christopher Wicking from the early 70s. That's the one that's got Jason Robards in it. Oh, wow. Um, okay. <clears throat> I, I don't know if anybody ever watches that movie, but it's fantastic. Now, it's a great script. Hessler, Christopher Wicking wrote the script, yeah. Hessler directed, like, I mean, among other things, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, if I recall. Um, maybe he, he directed, Kiss, directed Meets, which? Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, the TV movie. Didn't he direct that? Maybe, yeah. Okay. It wouldn't be unlikely. He's, he's done a lot of hack work. <laughs> no, but I, you know, the Murders in the Room Morgue thing, I have to say, and it may be an unfortunate, uh, you know, t- being left out of the equation because of the title, because so many films have been made in and around that title. I feel like I've definitely missed a couple, um, you know, because of, it's just like, oh, have I seen that one? I, I think I've seen that, you know. But in, when you say Jason Robards right away, I'm like, no, I don't think so. So, uh, well, this is not strictly this is not strictly an adaptation of the post story at all. It's actually not a theater group. We're performing an adaptation of the post story, cool. and then uh, uh, the way that kind of some of the uh, some of it sort of intersects. There's there's like a Phantom of the Opera sort of quality to the story too. It's a it's a really intriguing great script, and it's you know it's not pure cinema, but it's, they didn't ruin it when they made it. I mean it's it's a, it's a good cheap quality movie with just like a fantastic script. Nice. Well, that, I really need to see that. No, I definitely haven't. And I don't feel like that's one that's talked about a lot. I think you, you could be right no. out with the underrated there. Very no, cool. it's not. It's always, it's always been a favorite of mine. Uh, and then, have you seen Oliver Stone's first movie, Seizure? Um, I, you know what? I, I know of it, but that's one I don't know if I've seen. I, I feel like I went back. But you know what? I don't think I have. That's So you'd recommend that. That's cool. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. That's a, that's a real weird movie, like along the lines of like Messiah of Evil. It's a little bit more, you, you know. I mean, Oliver Stone's always been pretty pretentious, uh, and there's levels of pretension there, as there are certainly with Messiah of Evil too. But yeah. I tend to think that pretentiousness is not the greatest sin. I, I can live with a certain amount of pretentiousness. Well, not I mean, when you not not once you know better, like Oliver Stone does now. But <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I think pretentiousness is not the greatest sin that a movie uh, can, can be accused of. No, I agree. And I think often that atmosphere that we're talking about can have some of that pretension laced, or can be sort of in a, sort of tied to that. And that's, again, another place where I'm more forgiving of pretension in that. when If a great atmosphere is created out of it, um, I'm more okay with that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't know if this, this creates a great atmosphere. It's just that it is aggressively weird. <laughs> it's, not great, it's not great filmmaking, but it's, it's just such a bizarre... Uh, plot and a storyline, and it's not like any other. Again, I said this before. It's not like any other movie. Seizure is a pretty special movie. Um, do, can you describe the plot? Because I don't know if I remember it at all. Yeah, uh, this, this writer played by Jonathan Frid, who was uh, Barnabas Collins on oh, yeah, Dark Shadows. Yeah, Dark Shadows. Nice. Yeah, has this has this sort of weekend uh, retreat. This sort of you know he's having writer's block, which is kind of cliche, I guess. It's sort of like the you know, the priest who's lost his faith. He's having writer's block, you know, and, and he goes off on this weekend retreat, and then he's joined, for, you know, by, like, all his sort of bohemian friends. Um, but then, like, also the Queen of Evil, played by Martine Beswick, joins them and then puts them through, like, this series of trials. Um, and uh, every village shows up as, like, this deranged sort of... Uh, I think he's called the Spider. His character's called the Spider. He's a sort of deranged French dwarf nobleman. And it's 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 like a dinner party that turns into this uh, metaphysical sort of test of will. So he's, he's, it's, it's really it's really weird. Does it feel like it has a Bunuel influence? Because that's what I'm getting out of that description. I wonder if he was trying to be Bunuelian horror or something there. Yeah, well, you definitely feel that, like he's uh, he's making a movie that's up in a 
in a sort of Bergman-esque, Bunuelian, European art film vein. Wow, very cool. I do need to see that very much. Um, <clears throat> uh, you, I, I think I've heard you talk about animated films before, but you must have some interesting um, favorites in that category, some stuff that I know I haven't heard of. Um, I don't know if you have heard me talk about animated films. I'm, yeah. I'm actually, I generally, I generally am not a big fan of feature-length animated films. Ah, I see, okay. I enjoy the human material that goes into into movies. <laughs> I do have a, I, do, I do definitely have a favorite though, which would be um, uh, Lod Reininger, Lodi Reininger's um, Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which we're actually playing at the theater next month. Oh, very cool, very cool. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen never, never seen, seen that. It. Never seen it. No. That's a very early animated movie, and I always like those. I, it's a silent film, and I always like those films that. The silence that kind of came out before there were rules, where people kind of had to make their own technique, make their own rules, make everything up as they went along. So what she did with the Adventure of the Prince Ahmed is something that I think is very similar to, uh, if you've ever seen those uh, Javanese uh, or Balinese shadow puppets, where they're in front of like this screen, and that there's a light behind them, and then they're making, you know, basically like hands, like you, know, make, you make the rabbit with your hand, you know, they're making like all of those, but, you know, and they actually incorporate like different shapes of paper and stuff like that and cutouts and, and they, they enact these things behind the screen. Well, it looks like that and like her animation that she does is actually done like with shadows that are manipulated like behind the screen. Wow. Um, and they're just, they're, they're like all done with like cutouts and there's just sort of like look like uh, cutout snowflakes, like when you make the little snowflakes at Christmas time, like everything's like this cutout paper that's manipulated behind like a screen and it's all tinted and it's, I mean, it has a, a, a beauty that's all its own, and it's so delicate, like this, this these little filigrees of, of, of light coming through. Um, and that's that's a movie that, again, like no other movie. And it's it's well, that's gonna be my favorite animated feature, I would guess. That sounds captivating, man. I, I really need to see that. That sounds really cool. Um, and I, I like a lot of animated shorts. I think the you know the Warner Brothers cartoons. Oh yeah. Chuck Jones directed ones are some of the, our greatest achievements in film, and some of our greatest achievements as a nation and possibly some of the high points of what we are as Americans. Wow. Do you have any favorite uh, Chuck Jones stuff, like specifics, that you can think of? Not that I could... Not yeah. that I mean, I could his, stuff titles fucking, his stuff is all pretty... His stuff is all pretty... Like, I was... TCM was running uh, a group of his shorts and I think they ran, like, The Dot and The Line and, um, you know, some of the other Bugs Bunny stuff that was uh-huh. pretty memorable and I was... I'm always just um, floored by him. You know, such a... I mean, he gets credit but... I feel like he is on par with, like, you know, an Ernst Lubitsch or, you know, this just great comedic um, mind, you know, creative comedic mind, uh, filmmaking mind that doesn't get... Well, let's give, let's give him a lot of credit, but it's also, there's also the genius of the system, too. Yeah. And if you look at the Tex Avery cartoons, like, the ones that he directed, those are also really good. So it's not, it's not so much just the director. I mean, sure. it's the whole... This to all the writers and, and everyone who is involved in no, the whole you're, thing. you're totally right. And, and the musicians storm. and everything. It is a perfect yeah. storm. I, I, should, I shouldn't give it all to him like that. But, but, um, but yeah, it's just, I feel like that, those shorts, that, that particular thing doesn't get the artistic credit, that, as you say, that sort of it deserves. Because um, they're just... Sure, we take, we, take it, we take it for granted, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's for kids or whatever, however you want to write it off. Um, do you have... Um, I, some of your favorites. Who are a couple of your favorite lesser-known exploitation directors? Um, well, it's, it's it's always real hard to say who's lesser-known, just like yeah. it's hard to say who's underrated. But I, um, I do. I don't hear a lot of people, uh, and I, when I talk to people who collect, you know, film prints or who collect, have video collections, I don't talk to a lot of people who are interested, even in trashy films, who talk about Godfrey Ho's movies that much, ah. or, or about the trans world entertainment and the um, all of those. Like the ninja films, <laughs> those things are a scream. Yeah, we, yet, sorry. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I was just gonna say we, we like him a lot on the Gentleman's Guide. He's definitely a, a, a character. They reviewed some of his films, and he's he's quite a character. And his films are have you know pretty amazing amount of personality. Um, you know, even if it's repeated footage over the same film over and over again for a lot of them. But yeah, I, I don't believe him. But Richard Harrison said that like. He was like, yeah, I actually only made one movie with them, and then they just, they, they reused all my footage again and again and again, which is not true, but you can tell that, but anyway, yeah. it's, there's, a, there's a grain of truth there, because, you know, they reuse, like, footage of him over and over again, like, talking on the Garfield phone or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, like, uh, uh, Godfrey Ho, like, I, I think, 
more people should seek out Godfrey Host movies for just like some of the most bizarre like experiences of that narrative ever. They're almost like Jean-Luc Godard's films as far as the way they like fit together or don't fit together. They're they're very strange. Do uh, any, and then some other... Sorry. Mm-hmm, yeah. I was going to say, do any of his films stand out? There's so many uh, that uh, if you had any uh, specific ones that you like... Um, because I'm trying to remember, there's some great what-the-fuck kind of movies in his filmography, and we've covered a couple of them, but I'm blanking on the titles right now. Yeah, well, they kind of have all sort of uh, run together for me, but definitely uh, Ninja Terminator would be, <laughs> I think, I would definitely recommend that to anybody. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and, but, I mean, there's a whole shitload of them that have Ninja in the title that I, I they really, of course, just run together, because often they're the same footage. Yeah, uh, and it's almost always in his movies. He seems to just find... Like, Richard Harrison is a real actor in a bunch of them. But then otherwise, he just kind of seemed to find whichever white guys were in the neighborhood. <laughs> and, and he would cast them. And the only thing they would have going for them commercially would be that they were white guys. So it would tend to make the movie look less Chinese. Uh, yeah. And so, so like, it would just be some guys who just happened to, you know, run a hot dog stand in downtown Hong Kong. And he would give them the role and he wouldn't have any kind of charisma. And here he is, like, playing the bad guy in this karate movie. <laughs> and, and the reason that they made so many ninja movies was not just because commercially ninjas were available, was because, you know, they have three guys who could who could do martial arts, and they would try to make them look like a martial arts army by putting them all in ninja suits. Because yeah. you can't see their face, and they could just get, kind of be duplicated. Yeah, that's a great economic uh, choice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Godfrey, Godfrey Host movies are a lot of fun. And then some other people that I don't know that if everybody talks about are, like, uh, Duccio Tassari. I don't know if who, uh, uh, we just showed his movie Big Guns, which is so beautifully designed. It's such a great-looking, great-moving uh, Italian crime film. Uh, and also a movie he made that I guess we call sort of Hitchcockian, um, which is Puzzle, uh, which has uh, Luke Miranda and, um, what's your name in it, uh, Austrian actor, Santa Berger, who's totally beautiful. Cool. I like his movies a lot. And I don't know if he's well-known or not, but... His movies haven't gotten real releases, so I'm just going to assume he's still not that well-known. It's yeah. Fernando DeLeo, of course, is a great master. I don't tell you much about him. I don't yeah. tell your listeners much about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, mentioned, I mentioned Damiano Damiani. Oh, that's... Uh, yeah, he's a, about, sorry, he's a favorite, yeah, of one of the guys on the show. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that guy has good taste. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, he, he made a bullet for the general. That's uh, and then And then he also... His movies always had a left-wing... Um, Sort of subtext, or not even subtext, but left wing text to them. Yeah. Um, he also made Confessions of a Police Captain, which is so brilliant. You played that at Weird Wednesday, uh, right? That's uh, uh, I did. Who's in I that? Did. Uh, uh, who's the star of that? Um, well, Jack and Jura, Martin Balsam. Balsam, yeah, movies. sorry, yeah, Balsam. Anyway, yeah, yeah I, I need Martin to Balsam. see that. Oh, good. Yeah, there, yeah, you you do need to see that. Uh, and then that's all about corruption, uh, and it's. It's an it's an epic film. There's, I mean, it's not epic in budget, but it's really epic in the terms of the of what it is. It, that should really be a much more well known film. Uh, and then he also made uh, uh, How to Kill a Judge, uh, also with Franco Nero, which which also very similar in tone, all about corruption. So uh, Damiano Damiano is, uh, Damiani uh, is definitely a guy that you want to check out. Cool. Uh, also, I have down uh, listed is uh, Jimmy Wang Yu as a director that people don't really think of him as being a great director. But his movie, Beach of the War Gods, is really solid. Actually, it was um, Brian Trenchard-Smith who pointed that out when he was here talking about Jimmy Wang Yu, and he was talking about you know, some of the problems of yeah. shooting, that, uh, shooting Man from Hong Kong with him. And he was like, well, but I don't blame Jimmy Wang Yu for you know giving me all this shit about how I directed the film, because if you look at it, he was a fine director himself. And then I took that Beach of the War Gods shortly after, and sure enough, that's a really well-directed movie. Nice. Um, and there's some there's some filmmakers that I think are maybe not necessarily that unknown, but people don't recognize them as masters. As, that, that probably should be bumped up to a higher tier. Um, and I think every I think everybody who knows Chinese films uh, recognizes Chang Che um, as a master, and yeah. he is. He's a very great master. I don't know if people in the West think of him as a very great master, but also Lao uh, Carl Young is. A very great master and a master on par with Chang Che, I think. And I think, like, Eight Diagram Pole Fighters is worthy of being in the canon of great films. It's worthy of being right up there with Mr. Jimbo. It is 
one of the great films ever made. Wow. There's a diagram pole fighter. I need to see that. Um, I've not seen that. Uh, and then I, I don't think people talk, I, I talked about Jess Franco, so I'm not going to go on about him anymore, <laughs> but I think he's a master. Yeah. Or should be recognized as a master. Um, uh, Sergio Solima, I, I think, doesn't get recognized as the master that he is. Uh, and even I went into a video store here, and there was like a little sticker that one of the clerks put on Revolver saying, this movie's kind of slow. The Revolver is a masterpiece, and Solima deserves to be recognized uh, in that higher tier. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's a great it's a great film. That's actually one they've reviewed on the show, and they, I yeah. think they've recommended it, if I recall the episode, as, an epi- as a movie that, for people that haven't seen Eurocrime films, it could be a, uh-huh. a starter Eurocrime film for them uh, somehow. Mm-hmm. I, that was one they recommend, if I recall. Um, but, yeah, it's a great movie. Great movie. Yeah, it really is. Um, so, um, do you have a favorite uh, Rod Taylor film? Uh, I do, actually, yeah. I would say my favorite Rod Taylor film has got to be Darker Than Amber. Oh, uh, he's so nice. good in that movie. And he's so, he's such a great Travis McGee. And, I, and I'm a guy who reads the Travis McGee novels, and I love Travis McGee. I, I absolutely love John D. McDonald's Travis McGee novels. And I was going back and reading, the last time I showed uh, Darker Than Amber, I was going back and reading some of the reviews of the movie when it first came out. And so many people were like, Rod Taylor, is no way Rod Taylor could be Travis McGee. Because they had this picture of Travis McGee. But I had read Travis McGee novels before I ever saw Darker Than Amber. And he it totally is, he embodies Travis McGee, and he's the, the great Travis McGee. He's so good in that movie. Yeah, I know, he's, uh, and he's he, great. And it's just the, the sort of, being able to embody the sort of toughness and the sort of alpha male quality at the same time as, you know, being this tough guy whose emotions are you know, under siege by these horrible feelings. It's, it's so, there's so much depth in that performance. Yeah, it's a, it's a great little movie and definitely one that needs a more official release. As far as I know, it's never gotten any sort of release. Um, yeah. You know, so, so it has to be watched either as obviously a print as you guys acquired or, or showed at, or some sort of boot, bootleg television version, um, which is the only version I've seen, unfortunately. But um, it's definitely one of the great, you know, detective films that's, very unsung. I mean, I, I would put him up there with, you know, um, I love, obviously, The Long Goodbye. I love uh, Elliot Gould in that film, but I would put his performance right up there with that, with that Elliot Gould performance as far as great private eyes in films. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, and then he's also, uh, he's also great in the movie 36 Hours. I don't care if you've seen that. But he gets, to, he gets to play like a real tricky, tricky sort of good-bad role in that. Yeah, that's, uh, James Garner's in that too, if I recall. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think isn't Tarantino's a big fan of that film, if I'm remembering correctly. Also, right? It wouldn't surprise me if he is. Yeah, yeah. I think he might be. Um, what about Mitchum? Uh, you must have a few Mitchum favorites there, I would guess. Well, that's another thing, like where I think you, you know, you can get all tricky about it, and you know, it's very factual now to love, you know, friends of Eddie Coyle and all this kind of stuff. But you know, don't don't shoot yourself in the foot, <laughs> like not including among your favorites, Night of the Hunter, because it really is, you know, it's, it's, it's the seminal uh, Mitchum performance, probably. Yeah, I know. It's... And that would certainly be my favorite. And I also love, I, I don't know how people, of course, Out of the Past, too. I don't know how people watch that still, but Out of the Past is, is another great seminal uh, Robert Mitchum one. And one of the, it's one of the performances that really um, has created the Robert Mitchum of our imagination, of our thoughts, when we think of Robert Mitchum. Uh, but, I would encourage people to check out his kind of woman too if they haven't seen that. Oh yeah, John Farrow. Yeah, Farrow is great. Farrow is totally underrated as a director, and that's one of his better films, definitely. Yeah, and, and that was just a lot of fun. There's nothing too serious about it. You're not taking your medicine and watching this great classic film when you're watching that. Well, Vincent it's Price just, is Vincent Price is so entertaining in that movie. <laughs> yeah, he really is. I love his character, Mark Cardigan. The, the character name is even fucking great. You know, um, yeah, that's a great movie. I totally agree. Very breezy. You know. Uh, yeah. A great companion piece to Out of the Past in some ways, except obviously a, a lot lighter in tone. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it's it's so interesting to me, like a movie like Out of the Past that's now really um, become this classic film. Uh, when at the time, if I'm not mistaken, it was very much. I mean, RKO was a very B picture studio, and um, it definitely was not an A film when it came out. You know, I just love that sort of evolution of uh, you know more or less cheaper B cinema becoming classic cinema. I love that. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Robert Mitchum, it's, um, there's a set 
with a couple of sets that Shout Factory put out of the Dick Cavett show. Uh, and uh, one of the sets is Comedy Legends, and the other one is Hollywood Greats. Uh, and in that, it's like every, every there's like, I think, three or four discs. And each disc is like four full, three or four full shows with a different Hollywood legend. And a full show is like an hour and a half where it's just Dick Cavett sitting there and just having a discussion with that person. And they're all filmed in like 1970 or 1971. And so there's a lot of great ones, but uh, none is as good as Robert Mitchum. And Holy it's just Robert Mitchum. Just sitting there, and he's got a he's got a glass of you know scotch or whatever or bourbon, <laughs> and he's just sitting there, and he's just he is so cool. Wow! I mean, that word gets kicked around a lot. That word "cool" and it's so overused, and what does it mean, and all that. But you look at it, he is just a real thing, man. He's, he's sitting there in his sunglasses, and he's telling all these stories, and he's so he's so intelligent, he's so articulate, uh, he's so well read, wow. and he's. So cool. So you've got to go out and pick that up and yeah. just listen to him. So, and he's telling you stories about getting arrested, you know, about yeah, about all the stuff. And he was a teenager and all that. And it, he, he is so cool. But he talks about his RKO period a lot. He says, he says uh, well, every studio had to have a mule. Because like, I was kind of RKO's mule. <laughs> but but uh, that, that, I would say that interview is one of my favorite Robert Mitchum movies. That's great. Wow, do I need to see that? Uh, he is one of my—he's maybe my favorite actor of all time. So the fact that I wasn't aware of this—it's um, just. Oh my God! You got to go ahead and get I, that dude, get that right away. We're not kidding. I'm going to go and, and pick this up right now because I really want to see that. I'm, I love his—I love his persona outside of his movies. And I mean, people talk about obviously Steve McQueen is very much given credit for this—you um, know—this cool persona that he had. But Mitchum was cool before that, and uh, you know, I think people sometimes forget just how fucking cool he is. Um, and Mitchum. Mitchum's so cool in real life. You're not going to believe how cool Mitchum is. I mean, he is really the coolest person who's ever walked the earth. He's the coolest person I've ever seen. Oh, man. All right. I got to check that out. Very cool. Okay. Now, moving down the chain of actors as far as, far as where they stand with coolness. Uh, not to say this guy's not cool, but um, do you have a favorite Marjo Gortner film? Well, I've never seen the documentary Marjo, I'm sorry to say, but I imagine that would probably be my favorite Marjo Gordner film. Marjo's pretty hard to pretty hard to watch on screen for me. <laughs> he's just so he's so weird looking and I don't really understand why he was in films. Yeah. It, it, it's hard to really look at his face for me. But uh, I you know, if, if you were to say, Hey, let's watch a Marjo Gordner film which wouldn't you want to watch it, I'd probably watch the doc Marjo, which I haven't seen again. Yeah. Or I've seen um uh, I, I would say Mausoleum. Oh, that's right. So entertaining. It's such a great, entertaining, bad movie. Oh, yeah, that's uh, fantastic. That it's pretty hard to top. Uh, no, you're right. I don't think you can. We just reviewed Pray for the Wildcats on the um, podcast, which is an interesting TV movie. Uh, uh-huh. Great little cast but, with Tim included. Um, but, yeah. yeah no, I haven't seen that. That's the TV movie, yeah. I the one it's great. Andy Griffith and um, yeah, yeah. Shatner and stuff. Yeah, that's pretty fun. And he has a pretty awesome scene in a cantina where he's drumming on a table completely out of beat to the music that's playing it's it's one of the most embarrassing things i've ever seen um so I, i'd recommend it for that but anyway um yeah you can't beat mausoleum that i might go with that except i have an affection for earthquake just because i'm a big disaster movie fan and whatnot yeah yeah but anyway that's a, that's a good choice very good choice um what about jack elam uh you know there's a jack elam movie that i haven't seen speaking of uh Mar- not having seen the marju movie that i I imagine if I'd seen Creature from Black Lake, which everybody seems to like, that I probably liked that a lot. Yeah, that's But I, I haven't seen it. That's good. Um, I mean, for what it is, it's good. Yeah, you've seen it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to... I always think of Jack Gillen as a small uh, bit part guy. So, uh, you know, I think of Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. And I, I guess I like Support Your Local Gunfighter because he, kind of he has kind of a bigger role in that where he gets more or less be the center of attention and he gets a lot of they really set him up with like a lot of great jokes and a lot of great gags and he's just affectionate character yeah and he gets even like the punchline of the movie at the very end so that's cool no those are great choices I, I like him a lot I wish he had gone into a sort of a we'll call it a Henry Silva phase where he you know rose to prominence a little more in maybe some exploitation films overseas I would have loved to have seen him in more prominence you know I mean I love him in um uh, Never Dull Moment, the Disney live-action film with Dick Van Dyke and Edward G. Robinson, and I love him in uh, Lure of the Swamp. Um, I can't remember the director's name on that one, but but he's a great... He's just one of those... We, we talked about him last interview. Just one of those great faces, those great character actors. Um, yeah. Favorite underappreciated... God damn it, i got to just cross that off my 
questions. It's just Hawks films. Let's talk Hawks films. What do you like? Well, this really is an underappreciated Hawks film, actually. I mean, because I, I think most people, I mean, there's so many Hawks films that everybody knows and loves, but um, I don't know. If, I don't have people that actually even watch Air Force. Yeah, um, that's lower on the radar for sure. People don't talk about that one. Yeah, Air Force is, is uh, it's just so good. It's such a, it's such a pure Hawks movie. I mean, I don't know that I'd say it's better than, uh, you know, the classics that everyone knows, but it's right up there. I mean, it's as good as, you know, it's as good as Only Angels Have Wings, probably. Yeah. And it's it's one that people ought to see. And, and I think maybe because it doesn't really have big-name stars, except maybe it's John Garfield. John Garfield, yeah, yeah. For the star. Yeah. Um, but it's, like, with, with such a great performance from Harry Carey in that movie, um, and, and just you know, such great ensemble performances and such great direction from Hawks and such great photography. It's, um, and it's, it's just a great story. And it's, it's, it is that sort of seminal Hawks, you know, togetherness kind of movie where like the guys have this teamwork that they have to do and there's the professionals and they're forging ahead. Um, it, it lacks the, the Hawksian woman, but other than that, I mean, it's, it's really a clear, clear-cut Seminole Hawks movie. I, I do have to say that I've, I've always kind of hoped that Redline 7000 would be a movie that I could look at and say, well, this is this underappreciated masterpiece, <laughs> but I've never been able to get more than like 30 minutes into it. I always turn it off. It's it's a tough one. You know, I mean, I I appreciate it, but it's it, 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 I almost have to appreciate it as not a Hawks film because if I uh-huh. start, you know, putting it in that sort of paradigm, then I immediately I'm like, ooh, yeah, this doesn't hold up. But as a sort of a you know, a throwaway 60s racing movie, I can get through it. I've gotten through it a couple times, but it's tough. It, it, it's too bad, you know. It's not as... It, you really... I'm totally with you, though. You want it... Because it's not available, and because people don't talk about it, it feels like one that needs to be discovered, or that, you know, people are going to discover, but you're totally right. Um, yeah. Uh, what about uh, Film Noir? What are some of your favorites? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I have anything really outside the box to say on Film Noir. I'm, I'm, I'm not a... I, I've met some real heavy-duty film noir people recently who made me realize that I'm a bit of a piker there. Uh, talking, <laughs> talking to talking to Eddie Muller about it, you know, or talking to Kim Morgan about it. Like those are people who like really know their stuff. Yeah, yeah. I so, want to, uh, to interview Eddie at some point. I really want to get him on this show. Um, he seems like a great interview. So I'm almost embarrassed to to talk about film noir after after talking to Eddie. But, but when he was last here, he introduced me to a couple of films that I hadn't seen that are probably old news for a lot of people. But for me, I had never seen The Prowler and Cry Danger. Uh, and both of those were completely outstanding. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, The Prowler was, um, uh, how, what's the guy's name from Shane? Uh, the dad and, in Shane. Oh, yeah. That's okay, well, that guy, that guy. Oh, God, I'm such an idiot. That guy. <laughs> whose name is right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, and so, yeah, and he's great in that playing this uh, ambivalent, uh, ambivalent role that, that changes through the course of the movie. And he kind of grows and changes. Um, Dan Heflin, danger. Dan Heflin, sorry. Dan Heflin, of course. Thank you. He, he, clumps, he clumps in my mind with Ralph Meeker somehow. No, I see they that. Both, they both kind of clump together, and then I see his face, and then Ralph Meeker's name keeps jumping in front of him, but I'm not going to say Ralph Meeker. Anyway, you can cut all this stuff out. Um, uh, <laughs> So uh, the and then Cry Danger, which was Dick Powell produced it. Robert Parrish supposedly directed, although maybe Dick Powell directed it too. And that, that, that's just a very sort of uh, it's it's a spoof, but like the best spoofs, it actually functions well as a uh, an example of what is spoofing. You know, what? I haven't seen that one, so that's one I need to see. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to checking that out. Yeah. Um, all right, um, 60s comedy. That's a little bit of a broad question, uh, so you can interpret it yeah. as, as you will. Uh, I, I would say, yeah, probably my favorite 60s comedy uh, would be The Loved One. Oh, very nice. Uh, that's, that's probably my number one. And uh, But I tend to like the black comedies from the 60s, because there, the, you know, there were the black comedies, and then Big Hollywood was making you know big epics like It's a Mad, Mad, Mad 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 world which i also like but yeah i, I tend to like the sort of subversive black comedies like dr strange love and and the loved one and lord love a duck yeah those are all great especially yeah lord love a duck and and the loved one i love both those films and they don't get nearly the press they deserve as far as i'm concerned um yeah, those two are very those two are very similar movies aren't they like no, that would yeah. be a good double feature i was just thinking that yeah i know they'd be a perfect double feature um what about 80s comedy? I know that's an odd question. Maybe that's more Zach's territory with Brian, but I wondered what your thoughts were on 80s comedies. 
the 80s, I, I generally, I mean, I have an ambivalent relationship with the 80s <laughs> in that I, I grew up during the 80s, of course, but um, I still, although I appreciate more about the 80s than I used to, it's still not my favorite decade for film going. It's not, it's not like the 90s or something shitty like that, yeah. but it, it's not my very favorite, but um, certainly there were opportunities to be very subversive. And actually, really, a couple of my favorite comedies were made during the 80s, which would be um, uh, Surf 2, which is so brilliant and so well-designed and so underrated. Uh, and it was just such an adventurous film to make. Um, it has a spirit of experimentation. It's, uh, I think I really do think Surf 2 will be rediscovered in 30 years or something. People will go back and it'll, you know, like Hell's a Poppin' or something. People will look back at this... Uh, incredibly idiosyncratic comedy from the 80s. That, that, that's, sorry, that's an interesting double feature. Hell's a Poppin' and Surf 2. I'd see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think Surf 2 is... Like, like just some of the things that they try in that movie that they just went for. Uh, and then a lot of the, the interplay with the improvisation in that movie, it, it just really works really well. And we were we actually did a screening in L.A. with the director. And, yeah, I was there. That was a great screening. I yeah, right, there. right. And there was that great moment where I think he's, over the years, he's kind of like, yeah. And I see this happen a lot with guests. They look back and they think, well, that's a movie that, you know, I made this crappy old movie. And, they, you know, their, their perception of it tends to kind of darken and get colored by the fact that, you know, people probably look at Surf 2 and they think, oh, that dumb old movie, you know. But I, I could see him warming, you know, to his own film at that screening. I was like, you know, that that was a great movie and that was a really good movie people really liked that movie so I was happy about that yeah that was a great night man and it was a whole lot of fun to see with a crowd and that's one way I would recommend people see it is with a crowd it was so much fun um and so. another 80s comedy that I really like a lot is uh, O.C. and Stiggs obviously <laughs> And that doesn't have a great reputation at all. No, I was going to say, that might almost slot into the film you love that everyone else hates question I'm going to ask you in a minute here. But um, that one, yeah, definitely a one that stands out from Altman's filmography is something... People just find those characters so um, obnoxious and reprehensible. Yeah. It's tough. They are. Have you, read, have you read the original story? No, I haven't. I haven't. Well, they're, they're supposed to be obnoxious and reprehensible. And, like, if anything, like, he's, he's warmed them up a little bit and oh, made them wow. not quite so obnoxious. But, yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be, like, the most obnoxious people in the world. And so, like, I really like that about them. And, and, but they do, like, the, the film does add that little thing, like, where they have a reason for, for being anti-Schwab. Uh, and that, supposedly, there's the whole thing where the Schwabs wronged Ray Walston. It's like Stakes, ROCs, or Stakes Grandfather. Yeah. <clears throat> that that doesn't exist in the stories, and the stories they're just nihilist, and they oh, just wow. go after they just go after the Schwabs for no other reason other than they're just aesthetically offended by the Schwabs, wow. the Schwabs. So I, I like the I like the that in story, but the movie is just man, like like King Sunny on Day and all that just weird shit in the movie. Yeah, that's that's a pretty that's a pretty wild film. I agree, I agree. It's it's I actually have an affection for. I'm a huge Altman fan, and I have an affection for it. Again, sort of like Redline 7000, almost outside of Altman's canon, but in, uh, inside at the same time. I don't know if that even makes sense. But, yeah, there's an odd appreciation I have for that one because it's, uh, it's really not like, again, as we've said about a lot of these movies, not too much like other films that I've seen. There aren't too many like that one either. And it's got, you know, it's, it's got an Altman soundtrack too, you know. I mean, it's like like the sound design is, is all Altman. It's not like he just like went out and made this movie... And just said, I'll screw it, whatever, I'll just make this dumb movie. Like, if you listen to the care that he put into making a soundtrack in that, it's, and you know, the care, if you're an Altman fan, you know how yeah. much care he puts into the soundtrack. Yeah, he didn't get on it. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds just, you're right, it sounds just like, you know, pick mi many other Altman films where that, that classic characteristic sound design is there. Yeah, it's strange, though. It's such a strange thing to see that stylistic thing incorporated into this other story that seems outside of. I mean, I guess you can see a lot of thematics that are similar in, as far as the characters themselves as to why he would be drawn to them. Um, yeah. You know, because there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, anti-establishmentism in almost all his films, and, you know, so that kind of makes sense. But, yeah, it's a really interesting film, I think, on a lot of levels, as much as it's pretty loathed by a lot of people. Yeah, I, w I would watch that again right now. And then, of course, in, like, the 80s. I, like, I don't like the John Hughes comedies that much, although I respect them, but... You know, clearly, I'm not. I'm not going to go into it too much, but you know, I love Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And, oh. 
Repo Man, which is a comedy, and RoboCop, which is a comedy. You know, I, lo- I love those movies. Yeah, yeah. I just can't. I showed my little girl Pee Wee's Big Adventure. She's not into anything except animated films right now, but she, I got her to stick with it for the whole thing. And she, it's become one of her favorites, and I couldn't be prouder of that, you know, just that she's seen it, seeing it so early on. Because she's not even two years old yet, um, so she's pretty, it's pretty, I'm pretty psyched about that. It's a great film. Um, yeah. Favorite slasher film, if you have one? Uh, I, I'm not a huge slasher film guy, I'll admit. I don't sure. generally like the um, sort of clockwork slasher movies. But um, one that sort of uh, functions like a slasher movie, it's a slasher slash revenge movie in a way is uh, Taxi Hunter, the Anthony Wong movie, uh, the 90s cool. Chinese movie. Never seen it? Uh, and it it's, it's him, like, stalking bad taxi drivers <laughs> and killing them <laughs> because his wife was killed. It's, it, I don't know if you call it a revenge movie exactly, but it is sort of a body count movie because he's going after these taxi drivers just because he wants to get revenge on the bad taxi driver who killed his pregnant wife uh, by dragging her behind the taxi because he had her dress caught in the in the door and couldn't bother to slow down because he had to go get another fare. Oh, my God. Um, I first saw the movie when I drove a cab, so I have a real affection for it because they really pinpoint a lot of, like, the like, bad taxi drivers, <laughs> which I like. So that, that, we're really stretching the definition of slasher film, but it is sort of a body count film. No, I, I'm um, fine with stretching the definition. That's That sounds like a, an interesting movie. I would like to see that. And uh, I, I suppose you call Maniac a slasher film. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Is that, uh, and I like that movie a lot because the atmosphere and uh, wow. it doesn't feel like other movies. It has this very sort of dark, nightmarish quality to it. Absolutely. And then the other one uh, that I was thinking about talking about was uh, Polanski's Macbeth, which oh wow, you know, obviously has a real. I mean, it has supernatural elements, of course, but yeah. it's uh, it is a very bloody, violent movie. And I would, you know, loving Shakespeare, loving Polanski, I would, I would. If I were going to have to choose a slasher movie, I would go wild card and choose that one for, like, a marathon or something. I like that a lot. Now, that's one of the most, easily the most badass of any uh, Shakespeare adaptation I can think of. Uh, (laughs) It's it's fucking great. I mean, it's really fucking good. I love it. Um, Do you have a favorite, I mean, what the fuck movie? I mean, this, when I think about these questions, I guess it's, some of these are a little bit broad, but. Yeah, uh. What the fuck movies? Uh, I love Alabama's Ghost. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the Frederick Hobbs movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of his movies are what the fuck movies. Uh, those are classic what the fuck movies. Um, he didn't do Dark Town Strutters, did he? I, I'm thinking not. No, no, no that actually, was George William Armitage. Whitney, of all people. Oh, William oh, Whitney. Of all Whitney. People, That's right. right. Armitage wrote it. My bad. Wow. That's crazy. Anyway, yeah, so. Armitage wrote it. Yeah. Um, uh, and another what the fuck movie I like a lot is uh, Drunken Wu Tang from the Yuen Clan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is actually also known as um, Shaolin Drunkard. That's the one that your your Twitter um, uh, avatar comes Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. That's cool. I still haven't seen that. I really want to see that. Just because I was in... That, that your... one in Miracle Fighters. Miracle Fighters. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Oh, no, it's not Shaolin Drunkard. I'm uh, sorry, it's Taoism Drunkard. And Howling... there's another Unplan movie called Shaolin Drunkard. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um... Do you have a film that you love that everyone else hates? Well, clearly everybody else must hate O.C. and Stig, which I, I talked about. pretty hated, yes. Uh, you know what movie that I'm surprised at? I don't know that many people that like. Uh, and I've talked to a bunch of people, and, like, it's not like in books that this doesn't get, like, good reviews and stuff, but I don't know that many people who like Lisa and the Devil, the Mario Baba movie. No, you're right. Which I love. That's cool. Yeah, you're right. That one, I, is, it, is there multiple? No, I'm thinking... Is there multiple cuts of that film? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, the House of Extras has been cut, but That's there's right. at least in the double cut that's easy to find. Yeah, yeah. I remember Image Entertainment put out a DVD with both cuts. Um, what, what's the difference between the two, or if you know? Um, the Lisa and the Double Cut is well, obviously the better cut. Oh, yeah, Lisa and the Double Cut is the pure cut, um, and the version uh, that they made as House of Extras of them is an Exorcist ripoff, and they added Robert Alda. Uh, playing the part of an exorcist, like investigating the case of Lisa and the Devil. Okay. So they wanted to, you know, get a priest in there, which the original film doesn't have. The original film is very poetic and very sort of surreal, uh, kind of storybookish, and I like it quite a lot. But anything I don't like about it is that Elsie Summer is not much of an actress, um, but she's a great photographic subject, and it kind of reminds me of um, Perfume of the Lady in Black in a way. It's not as good as Perfume of the Lady in Black to me, but uh, I like it a lot. Cool. 
it yeah. has that kind of dreamlike movie. Yeah, no. and I, I think generally, generally everybody hates dreamlike movies. So it's, I like those. No, it's true. Sometimes I, I am not in the right frame of mind, and I may be a little hard on su- such films. But um, I got to realize... everybody. Everybody hates those movies where they can't tell if it's dream or reality. Yeah. Except me, I love. Them. No, I kind of like those too, actually. Um, you know, I mean, I think you. You just have to be sort of ready for that, you know, and, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I, that sort of, if someone can create, again, it comes back to atmosphere. If they can create a really interesting atmosphere, if it's dreamlike or whatever, I mean, that's some of the most, uh, that's some really cinematic stuff to do, I think, if, if you can if you can do that well. And obviously Mario, Mario, sure. Bava, Mario Bava can do it really well. Um, I need to rewatch Lisa and the Devil because it's been a while since I've seen it. I don't remember it standing out to me, but I, I certainly uh, am open to rewatching it. I love his films. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about any of the um, upcoming Weird Wednesday schedule, which I think you just put out a couple a week or so ago? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, next week uh, the Love Butcher, which is just a great, uh, grimy, hilarious movie with a great performance from Eric Stern in it. Yeah. I. I don't know how many people have seen that movie. Probably not very many at yeah. all. But uh, but there there is some sort of uh, DVD release. I think it's it may be great market. If it's not, forgive me. But I think it is kind of a great market uh, DVD release. I think you're right. Um, uh, and yeah, that movie is yeah, you know, it's a pretty basic plot. It's you know, it's it's two brothers who are actually the same guy, just in different wigs and different disguises. <laughs> but uh, but but it's it's really it's done as like a showcase for this actor, and it's the kind of thing that you would do as like a you know like Richard Burton's Bluebeard or something like that, for the showcase for this you know great actor. But it's it's for Eric Stern, the actor nobody's ever heard of, and he gets to, but he gets to do like all these acting gymnastics and do all these different accents and do you know play all these different parts, and it's he, he really does a great job with it. I mean, you can't say anything bad about it, uh, and it's a fun like fun hilarious movie. Uh, and then on into Cop Killers the next week. Uh, which is a Bill Osco movie. Uh, the guy made Flesh Gordon. Oh, that's and it's—I I don't know why I like it so much, uh, but it's—it's it's there. You know, it's this brutal sort of seventies. You know, there is no hope. Existential crime movie. That's not you know especially well executed, but it has a great sort of quality that it, that I like, and I just I like being in that movie and enjoying it. Cool. Um, Werewolves on Wheels the next week. Uh, which is a movie, and it's got a great title. Um, but the, the, the classic appeal for that film to me is not so much uh, werewolves, you know, aspect of it. It's the it's kind of what you're seeing going on behind the scenes, which is that you're seeing a film spiraling out of control. You're seeing a director lose control of the film, and you're seeing the stuntmen take over. And, and not just stuntmen, but, you know, stuntmen, flash, roughnecks, like the guys who are playing, you know, the tough biker dudes. They take the movie over, and... The script is left behind, and they just do whatever kind of stunts, whatever kind of dangerous, drunken stunts that they feel like doing. <laughs> you know, this is the way it appears to me uh, in the film. And so, the, you know, people keep getting set on fire, or they crash their bike into something on high speed for no reason. Um, and then there's a great point in that film, in the middle of the film, when there's one character named Movie, and he's the guy who's sort of like the analog for the filmmaker, and he goes around, for, you know, with a pretend camera, like he's filming everything, and they call it movie. That someday he's going to be a film director. Uh, and he walks around, and his name's movie, right? So he gets lost. He actually gets killed. And everybody's looking around for him. And it's after the film's gone off the rails. And they're all looking around for him, and they're walking everywhere, like walking through this junkyard or whatever, and climbing on top of hills, and they're all walking around yelling, Movie! Movie! Where are you? And it's great, because it's almost like they're looking for like the lost narrative thread of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is one of a kind right there. That is pretty great. And so that, that's Werewolves on Wheels. Uh, then there's Trader Horny, which is a Dave Friedman tribute. Uh, and that, that's a real sort of Mad Magazine kind of corny movie with, with a bunch of corny jokes that just keep coming at you. And I, I like it's good-spirited, um, kind of dumb, old sort of comic, comic strip feel. Cool. Um, and then the next week is Shoot!, which is a really interesting movie. Uh, it's a Canadian pet exploitation tax shelter movie. Yeah. Um, and, and then that movie has a great macho cast of like, uh, it's you know, like middle aged. Right? Yeah, Cliff Robertson, who's so good. If you never, like, uh, even Zach was like saying, oh, I kind of thought of him as like a poor man's Robert Stack. Yeah. But he is so good. Uh, Cliff Robertson, actually, if you look over Cliff Robertson's career, 
he's been good a lot. Like Underworld USA. I was just going to say that. That's uh, He's fantastic in that movie. Yeah. Like, he's really, he's a really good actor. Yeah. Uh, and then he won an Academy Award for Charlie, which isn't, isn't much watched anymore. Uh, and I haven't seen it. Uh, and then in uh, The Palm of the Section. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, he's really, but he's really good in this movie. And then Ernest Borgnine, another really good actor, uh, is in it. And Henry Silva is taking it seriously. Um, yeah, and that's just a movie about a bunch of like middle-aged guys who go hunting and uh, one of them gets shot and he shoots back and they kill the other hunter and then it's, it becomes a sort of cat-and-mouse game that may may just be paranoia or it may be real and you don't really know through the course of the film and it's beautifully done. Uh, it's directed by a guy named, the guy whose name I've now forgotten, the guy who made the picks, the other, the Julian Rothman produced kind of exploitation film. Cool. What is his name? You, you can look it up. Harvey Hart. Yeah. Harvey Hart's his yeah. name. He does a real good job with uh, with uh, directing the thing and he's got those great actors in it. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to be out of town for that which makes me really sad. I just found that out. Um, and then Cat Merkel and the Silk for the next week also known as Cruising High which is this juvenile delinquent movie that would it's really a double feature with like Massacre at Central High it has this um, it's, it's this movie where it's like you know it's high school and these are the high school gangs but everything's real super serious <laughs> uh, and you know they're everybody's taking it real seriously and, and they're the juvenile gang stuff is is uh, approached with like the same feel that you would uh, approach like a war movie with or something. It's like everything's like every little minute detail of, of their of their teenage gang life is is chronicled and amplified. Uh, and then Hooch, which is this really hilarious regional North Carolina. I've seen that. Um, yeah, it's, that's great. It's a lot of fun. Gil Gerard, you know, I mean, but was it, it's pre Buck Rogers, right? It's pre Buck Rogers, if I recall. It's, it's just pre Buck Rogers, yeah. yeah. No, that's a lot. Uh, it, it's just a fun little comedy. Deliver Us from Evil uh, is, is the next week, and it's a Horace Jackson movie. Uh, he made uh, he made this movie. He made a movie called Johnny Tough. Uh, and Which, yeah, those movies have have uh, a real agenda. Like kind of, they're 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 mainly about yelling. I think isn't, isn't Johnny <laughs> he, Tough? He must have been an angry guy. Okay. Isn't Johnny Tough? I thought I heard someone describe it as like the black exploitation 400 blows. Is that accurate, or maybe I misread that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, you you could definitely see it that way. Um, but yeah, uh, Deliver Us from Evil is uh, a lot of fun. I haven't seen it in a good number of years. I, the, the thing that I remember most about Deliver Us from Evil is that the hero really, it genuinely is a recovering psychotic. And at some point in the movie, he just kind of goes back to being a psychotic. Nice. Which is a strange thing for somebody in a movie to do. And then he takes the heroin on this harrowing hell ride of psychosis. Very cool. Uh, and, then the, and then the very last movie is Girls at the Gynecologist, which is one of those Ernst Hoffbauer uh, schoolgirl report type movies. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, just bought the print. Uh, very eager to watch with an audience. But there's no way that I couldn't program a film called Girls at the Gynecologist. Yeah, that's a pretty, it's a pretty grabbing title, you gotta, you gotta admit. It really is. Um, well, Lars, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'd love to check in with you, you know, in another... It's been, it hasn't been quite a year since I talked to you, but I'd love to check in with you another little while if you're down for that. I always love our conversations, so hopefully you, you might be up for that at some point in the future. Of course, anytime. And then next time we talk, go ahead and just record it, and we'll put it on the air. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, I don't know why okay. we didn't do that this time, but, but next time, definitely I'll, I'll consider that. Okay. All right, well, thank you. Nice, nice talking to you, and I look forward to seeing it. Absolutely. I'll talk to you. Okay, cool. Bye-bye. Later. Thanks for listening. You can find The Gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call The Gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email The Gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. Thank you.